0: Welcome to 1971. I'm Justin Cox, and I'm here with the one and only Ryan Page. Ryan, how's it going? Uh,
1: it's going awesome. Super excited to be in 1971. How excited I, are you? All I can say is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo!
0: That's getting me real juiced up to represent the Rolling Stones this this week, which is yes. the thing
1: that I'm going to be doing just in case you need to be reminded. We're We're coming to, you know. The, the later years of this podcast, we only have a couple years left and I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge you did a much better job of drafting than I did. I felt that way on draft night. I'll say that. I don't know if you just put more thought into it or you had a better strategy or, or w- I, I, I don't know, but kudos to you.
0: I mean, it's, it's really a simple, this becomes really clear once you do the actual podcast and play it through, but it's really a simple, like, wait the early years to the Beatles wait the late years to the Rolling Stones situation. And that's what I did.
1: Yeah. I didn't think I, I did not think about that dynamic too thoroughly, but that's okay. I I'm happy to be on team Beatles in 1971 uh, for the most part. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to lie that sticky fingers is definitely one of my favorite albums of all time. And one, of the only of these albums that we talked about that I also literally own on vinyl.
0: Oh shit. I didn't know that. Do you own the one with the actual zipper?
1: No. Yeah, no. I, I I don't. Sorry to do that to you. That's okay. It just, (laughs) you should know and the audience should know that when I say that I have something on vinyl, I don't know that I've ever spent more than like $5 on a vinyl record just out of sheer principle um, and so any, any vinyl record I have of like a classic album is going to be a shitty repressing,
0: but that means you, you swooped on a copy of sticky fingers in like a used situation then, right?
1: Yeah. I couldn't tell you, I, I don't have a recollection of, of when or where I bought it, which is kind of sad. Um, but I, I'm definitely happy. It's, it's part of my collection and it's a fun, it's a fun one to listen on vinyl from start to finish for sure. It, it really is
0: my, that, my parents had that one. My, I listened to it a ton. It actually probably was the first Rolling Stones album I got down on. And that's, I think the reason I drafted it in this. Okay. So a question I have that I'd be curious what your thought is. If you were to give one, if you were to say like, Hey, you should get into the Rolling Stones and you you could only give one
1: album to a person who wasn't into the Rolling Stones. What would you give? It would be this one. No doubt. Like <laughs> definitely this one. I mean, Santa. because it's an album uh, almost totally made up of just barn burner jammer, like classics. All to, to, I mean, there's there's a couple of misfires on here to me. But yeah, th- th- there, it, it wouldn't even be a thought like I'm not saying that necessarily makes this the best Rolling Stones album, but easily the most accessible.
0: I think it's it's definitely a thing where it's not the the question's not the best. The thought is like, if you were to get someone into the Rolling Stones and show them something awesome, it is this one. Like it, because Exile is extremely good in all of its own ways, but you would that would not be the one you give to someone who, unless you know no. that they love that kind of thing or something. And then we thoroughly covered Let It Let It Bleed and uh, Beggars Banquet. They have their big moments, but they also have their, like, you kind of got to be a little bit of a Stones head already to like appreciate them.
1: And this one, this one gives you the most. Exile on Main Street is like a classic example of you, you. If you gave someone that as their first Rolling Stones record, you'd be doing them a huge disservice. Totally. You have to have the context of the rest of their, you don't have to listen to every Stones album, but you have to have some context of their other music before you can get to to that album. Um, So that that leads me, I have a question for you, Justin.
0: Real quick before that question, just because I know I want to lean fully into Sticky Fingers right now. What are the three Beatles solo albums that are going to come after this?
1: Good question. Uh, So Paul McCartney put out the uh, album Ram. John Lennon put out Imagine, the album, also featuring the song Imagine. And Paul Paul McCartney, um, actually to be extremely accurate ram is credited to paul and linda mccartney that um so if you're trying to find that on a music service make sure you include linda i guess uh and then the band wings which is also you might as well just call paul and linda mccartney um put out the album wildlife which was the first album from that group band persona whatever you want to call it awesome all right
0: hit me with hit me with the question
1: did you ever Wake up to find a day that broke up your mind, destroying your notion of circular time.
0: <laughs> I, got, I have absolutely nothing on it, but I can't wait to read you some Imagine lyrics later. <laughs>
1: I'm, not, I'm not dumping on that song. I, I honestly want to say and one of my grand proclamations that I think Sway is the most underrated Rolling Stones song of all time. Um, at least in my mind, no one else knows this song except for me. And uh, I don't understand why it, it isn't. I, I'm not saying it's up there necessarily with Brown Sugar or Wild Horses, but um, I, 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 I think that song is, is awesome.
0: It's a little bit unassuming in what it is right like it's it's a i i'm not a person who i think i know what you're talking about you're not going to find it on greatest hits records you're not going to find it in those spaces but i loved that song i've really loved that song it's one of my favorite songs on this record and i think it's a little a little bit of what you got to with uh last week with um let it be it's like Get back is your track one, and two of us is your track two. Like Sway as a track two is so good. It's such yes. a, it's a perfect follow up to that. It feels like it. It's it's in keeping with the vibe that is being set by Brown Sugar, but it's it's this other thing. It's it, there's no
1: way like Sway is not trying to be a single or anything. It actually even kind of kicks it up a notch because really Brown Sugar when you listen to it is actually a little bit more mid tempo than you might think. you know, compared to some of these other hard rocking songs, like brown sugar is actually a little bit more stayed than you might remember it. Um, and so in actuality, like sway almost kicks it up a notch before you bring it back down with wild horses.
0: Yeah. Brown sugar, sway, wild horses. Ooh, baby. They do this. They literally do this on three albums in a row. Like the first three tracks are three, like, like full-on like clear-cut single next song although although you'd swap the or swap the order of track two and three on this one but like mm-hmm. you get you get this the acoustic open space song you get the kind of like jammy song and then you get the big radio single and
1: yeah don't you cool. think if it was if they're really aping the let it bleed beggars banquet formula they that you got to move would have been track two
0: Yeah, one of those kind of like very, very bluesy, like plucked out acoustic. Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah. Um, I I mean, this album just speaks for itself. I honestly think, for whatever reason, we talked a lot about how those Beatles concept albums, the concept is just not there. And I think of either of these two bands, this is almost the most consistent album of a concept album and i know it's not called a concept album but just hear me out on this i think this is a concept album and the concept is uh kicking ass and taking names
0: (laughs) and you're not going to find an argument here with that um and might I remind you that I'm the person representing this album that is kicking ass and taking names. Not that you have any uh, choice in the matter because that's what it does.
1: All right. So, okay. So let me, let me take sticky fingers down a peg then.
0: <laughs> I,
1: so I, I hope, I hope you've go to Brown
0: sugar and I know. I- all right, well,
1: Let's go start with side one track one. Uh, we talked as, as recently as last year, or I guess it was two years ago at this point, how, um, Mick was doing a great job of channeling the blues and sort of marrying this British singing sensibility with this old school blues kind of soul style singing. And, um, he, he's gone too far. Um, he (laughs) Brown sugar is the musical equivalent of hanging out with a bunch of black guys and then just casually dropping the n-word in conversation with them and it's like whoa no you don't you don't get to say that what and (laughs) don't take my word for it Mick Jagger doesn't sing a lot of the lyrics for this song in concert anymore or even like almost immediately after this album was released he was already changing the words to less controversial things
0: Damn. I didn't know that. That's, that's, uh, all right. Well, so you, you, you like last week when we talked, you were like knee deep in the Jan Wenner, uh, book about John Lennon, like extended interview. And I found an interview between Jan Wenner and, uh, Mick Jagger right after this album that I, I pulled an excerpt of about specifically Brown Sugar, which is, this is just fucking great it says this is one of your biggest hits a great classic a radio single except the subject matter is slavery interracial interracial sex and eating pussy and then mick interjects and drugs and then in parentheses it says heroin that's a double entendre just thrown in brown sugar being heroin Jan winter asks brown sugar being heroin and and then Jan winter interjects and pussy (laughs) That makes it. The whole mess thrown in. God knows what I'm on about in that song. It's such a mishmash. All the nasty subjects in one go. So Jan asks, like, were you surprised that it was so, such a success amid all that? And he said, I didn't think about it at the time. I would never write that song now. <laughs> I would probably censor myself. Oh, God, I have to stop. I can't write raw like that. Well, thank God he wrote raw like that in that moment. It's it's a fucked up little song. There's no doubt about it. It's, it's a
1: but we're lucky to have it as a document that makes it even worse uh, to me that just that's a great song i will tap my foot and, and maybe even sing along to it a little bit as i did earlier just in spite of myself but those lyrics are indefensible and the fact that mixed defense of them is like well i was just being flippant and vulgar it's like that's even worse I just I I disagree.
0: That's worse. No, what's worse would be calculatedly like thinking about that and trying to send a message with that. That's worse.
1: I, I mean, I guess that's yeah. Like okay, that's the worst possible thing that could have happened was Mick Jagger like writing an intentionally racist and like hurtful song, instead of just writing a thoughtlessly racist and hurtful song, the better scenario is that he uses those imagery to make some kind of point or to somehow uh, defend or uplift or speak to the experience of those people's pain, not just co-opt it flippantly because it sounds cool.
0: It's he's not co-opting it because it sounds cool. You know enough about the Rolling Stones at this point that there is sort of s- some satirical sort of taking on the, the caricature of this type of person in a way. It may not be as overt as something like Dead Flowers or, or uh, like some other songs that they do, but it's, it is of that, in that strain. I, think. I
1: feel like it's an of the strain of Stupid Girl. Like it's just a better song than "Stupid Girl," but th- I don't. I don't get a, a lick of, ir- of ir- irony or like subtext to this song. Like Mick just basically said, like I just tried to throw in like all the worst things I could think of, but there's no purpose to doing those things. It's just to have bad, you know, things that happened. Yeah, I mean, I've I've
0: I've like thrown myself into the corner of trying to like justify a song with these lyrics, which I'm not. I'm not interested in doing because I, I mean, I'm too cowardly to write. I'm not too cowardly. That's the wrong way to put it. I wouldn't write these lyrics. You know, I get, I get the problems that are there. Um, But I do, I do see where like, all right, we got this thing. We got a hot riff. We got a song slam out some lyrics in a day, which it sounds like is like just a quick, like legal pad session of him writing down lyrics And just throwing all the fucked up shit at the wall, not out of hate, not out of a grand point. The stuff in this radio like smash pop song is going to be a little bit fucked up and weird. So I think I think like I'm not I'm not here to cancel the song is the best I could say about it. But I'm also not here to to defend it and try to say that it's like uh, a hill I want to die on.
1: I'm I'm not coming on here trying to cancel Brown Sugar. I'm not saying I don't listen to that song and that I don't enjoy that song. Uh, I'm saying that I was probably a happier person before I like specifically listened to the words of it. I would say most people actually have never
0: paid attention to the words of it because they're just so like dizzied by how good it is.
1: Like I always knew as an adult that, you know, that Mick Jagger had dated women of color and that it was, you know, brown sugar is, is you don't have to be a genius to to figure out that metaphor but just reading the lyric sheet it's like this is this can makes this more of an awkward listen sometimes and and it's more of a credit almost to brown sugar that it's such a good song that i i'm just forced to to completely ignore that whatever and obviously mick is not he's not sitting here championing and being like this is my like there, there is something to be said for like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, this was like kind of flippant, but also like, that's just the song.
0: Yeah. And well, like you don't, you don't find anything like a little bit alleviating or interesting about the fact that he says the subject matter is slavery, interracial sex, eating pussy. And then, and then Mick Jagger interjects with, and drugs, a type of brown heroin. Like that to me, that to me takes the whole thing and like, kind of is like these are just words on paper. They're not as much. They're not as like concertedly about this specific thing that you could easily read into them being about.
1: I I hear what you're saying, and it and on one level it makes sense, but on another level, like this is America, and any I'm and maybe this speaks to a, a, the cultural differences a little bit. But anytime you're invoking the image of slavery in a flippant manner, like that's a lot, like that. That's a lot. It's one thing to like invoke uh, drug abuse, like heroin in the flippant manner. There's a lot of people whose lives have been ruined and, and a lot of pain caused by heroin abuse. Um, but Mick Jagger had some kind of firsthand knowledge of that. If you're going to invoke the pain and hatred of slavery, there's got to be a better reason or more of a broader message than just like naughty things.
0: You are. Yeah, you are. You are right about that. I'll, I'll take that.
1: I'm sounding to myself very holier than thou. um, And I'm just trying to make clear that I'm trying to poke some kind of (laughs) holes in
2: this.
1: (laughs) And that's, that's just an easy one. That's just a
0: softball layup. It is. It is like something, something about the like stupid girl is, is clearly idiotic, right? Like it's idiotic. And it's kind of a, a middling, it's a fine song, but it's whatever. Brown sugar is both a better song And touch like hits a more delicate nerve in a way. And I think, I I don't know. I think it's sent us into a waters that this podcast has not sailed in before.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of uh, racial appropriation. So another one of my complaints or maybe better qualified as nitpicks about this album I searched high and low and I could not find a songwriting credit for Otis Redding on I Got the Blues, which is confounding to me um, because uh, maybe Otis Redding didn't write that song, but that is an Otis Redding song. It's
0: like deliberately aping an Otis Redding, but it's not necessarily a cover song, right?
1: It's not a cover song. It's an original song that's credited to Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, but go listen to the, the Otis Redding song Cigarettes and Coffee or I've Been Loving You Too Long and it, it's there. there's aping and then there's stealing and like even down to the like horn section on, on this song it sounds exactly like an Otis Redding song except to be quite honest like not nearly as good
2: as yes,
0: So our friend Matt said one time, if you ever write something that sounds good, that means you're copying a person who already wrote something because we've lived and made music for this many years and especially like four, four times signature, like pop and rock music. And something I absolutely love about the Rolling Stones is that they're like, I, I read some interviews like in the time leading in, in the week leading up to this conversation that was just like. Oh yeah, that song is is us doing this person. This song is us doing this person. We're like they're they're essentially transparent about who they're copying, and you know what better person to copy than Otis
1: Redding? The Rolling Stones would know better than I do, but I don't know what songs they're aping with Brown Sugar or Wild Horses or Bitch. Like those sound pretty damn original to me. Like they're in the same vein as older Rolling Stones song, but. I'm sure there's some old blues musicians or maybe Keith's like, Oh, I stole this riff from that guy, but those songs sound pretty, pretty damn original to this point to my ear. Um, so I don't know if that excuse works for me. That one, that, that one is particularly egregious. I will say that that is pretty much all the negative things I can muster about uh, sticky fingers other than sister morphine, just being a kind of uh, Middling song that I don't love. Everything else on the album is kick ass, balls to the
0: wall. Sister Morphine, I would, no one would argue that it's one of the best songs on the album, but it is a complimentary piece to this album. No doubt
1: And I also think something that's important to me about this record or, or conceptually is that I, 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 John Lennon has done a lot of shit talking over the past few years to the Rolling Stones um, and maybe sometimes rightfully so, but he's certainly not been shy about his opinion that the Rolling Stones just copied them and just like put out the same album as them six months later. And I feel like this album really puts the lie to that. Like this has nothing to do with the Beatles. It's no way influenced by the Beatles. And it's as good as any record that the Beatles ever put out. So you can put that shit to bed if you think like, well, yeah, the Rolling Stones can only make quality music or, you know, just, they're just waiting to hear what the Beatles did. Like I, that, I don't know if that, how long that's been not true, but this definitely puts the nail in that coffin.
0: Something that's insane to me is like that they talk about all the anticipation leading up to this album. Like what's the next Rolling Stones album. There was like this intense building anticipation. It's like, it's only been two years like, what, what do you mean all this anticipation? But, like, it, it shows you. And it really, like, to me has, like, validated the structure of this podcast as much as some of it's, like, kind of comical and funny. Is like, we talked last week. Literally, these bands had one, two, or three albums every fucking year for, like, six years until yeah. until 1970 when the Rolling Stones didn't have an album. They just had a live album that was, like, a little bit in response to a bootleg like kind of going viral as things go viral in the late 60s. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they they were spending, they were putting two years between albums and that hadn't happened between any of these bands since like 1963. So like, of course there was a shitload of anticipation and not to mention they just put out two amazing albums. They're at their absolute peak. Like the, the anticipation for Sticky Fingers had to have been crazy.
1: Yeah, and I feel like it's validating to me something I've been saying on this podcast for like the past four years, which is like, why do y'all have to put out an album every year? Why don't you just take a minute, collect your thoughts, collect your music, and instead of looking at you, Paul McCartney, uh, putting out, <laughs> you know, like 10 songs every four months, like just wait and sift that shit a little bit and let the, the cream rise to the top. I'm just going to mix my metaphors like crazy on this podcast. <laughs> uh, like here, here is the fruit of, of what can happen when you give yourself a little break and you just like save up your best songs. And some of the like Brown Sugar, they played that song live for the first time at Altamont. So that was in 1969. So they had plenty of time and it shows that this is a fully mature record with some of the best songs anyone's ever written, but certainly in the Rolling Stone catalog, I feel like we haven't, we've just touched on it, but the song Wild Horses means so much to me. I don't know why I don't, you know, the lyrics aren't about my life, but just something about that song. Uh, it means a lot to me. Wild Horses is
0: an incredible song.
1: That was, that was one of my like, that was one my dad
0: played a lot when i was a kid one of the early like guitar songs i learned it's cool to know that it was (laughs) i I, like initially started with the thought that it was a keith keith richards song and then what i read throughout this process was that (laughs) i don't know if you guys can hear my cat meowing but i do i'm gonna (laughs) i'm I'm gonna let her out i'm gonna let her out in a second join the pod pele yeah but (laughs) but then it's (laughs) let me just let her out so wild horses a funny thing that i read was that like it's attributed to keith like people think of it as a keith Richards song but mick says that keith wrote the melody and the phrase wild horses in quotes and that uh mick wrote the rest of the song just funny to me
1: (laughs) I, i don't think do we even need to talk about can you hear me knocking like if if i need to explain why that song is is great like i don't know i don't know what we're doing no don't need to i, I mean I,
0: it rips just insert a cool clip of uh ripping here
1: inserted um i i like to imagine when mick jagger was throwing all this stuff at the wall for brown sugar just thinking of like the worst imagery possible then he got to the end of the song and he was like yeah but the name of the song brown sugar is still pretty tame i know i'll write a song called bitch <laughs> this will really get my like potty mouth across it's another it's another rip roaring tune though and it kind of
0: fits with your thesis of uh like them like fronting track one side a track one side b always with the with those kind of songs.
1: Yeah. This that's, this is a definitely that classic arrangement on this album. Yeah. Bitch. Like what I have to say is that bitch, like
0: I love it. I really love it. It's like a song that I really like a lot. So I want to make sure like I make that point extremely clear, but in, in the way that I like burned Ringo's like, uh, um, lounge act album last week, the it's the moment it's the moment on this album that I would like dial back the horns a little bit. Right. But I really? know for a goddamn fact, that's, that's me and my sensibilities. And that's it. That's
1: it. I think I, I, I'm happy with the horns on bit. Something about them coming in feels very triumphant for me, especially because then when the, the vocal line starts matching that part and they're just kind of being like, i don't know i it it works for me but i I could see being annoyed by that i mean now that we're just going through moonlight mile is is a great way to close this out um and is also a song that i love and means a lot to me
0: moonlight mile is very much in the spirit of uh like those previous albums to start with a bang and they start with a bang in a way that's like they're all kind of very different from each other you know like brown sugar gimme shelter and sympathy for the devil are very different songs but they're standout rock and roll like kind of beasts and then they all end with like what is essentially like a church hymn like a like and moonlight mile is that moonlight mile is an awesome ending to this album
1: Yeah, what I love about Moonlight Mile too, especially because it has the word moonlight in it, is it really sounds like a song you can just imagine the Stones or just Keith and Mick like on a porch at night after everyone else has gone to bed or like out around a fire and like Keith just starts strumming out this like, you know, thoughtlessly like a a chord progression and then all of a sudden Mick starts singing and this whole song comes out like that's what the song when I listen to it that's what I'm imagining is it's sort of like the end of the night the night's winding down and then you know this this just sort of swells up and comes out
0: yeah it feels very organic in that way it is just, it's just that's a cool song
1: um, I do
0: I do want to like make clear like I didn't say much about uh, Dead Flowers but Dead Flowers is basically one of my favorite songs ever it's my favorite song on this album and is one of my favorite songs ever it's like it's the ultimate uh Mick Jagger playing sort of country rock music to me
1: yeah it's similar to that sort of country honk vibe where it's just super fun to sing especially the chorus parts and he's kind of crooning on it and everything about it is just pitch perfect and fun (laughs)
0: Now I'm here with Mark Richardson, who is the rock and pop music critic for the Wall Street Journal and former editor in chief of at Pitchfork, where he reviewed Sticky Fingers when it was reissued in 2015. So I'm going to ask you this uh, same question that we ask everybody, Mark. But you can you can take it in a Sticky Fingers direction if you'd like to disregard it right away. But ha- here you go, um, Beatles and St- Beatles or Stones in 1971. Who do you got?
2: Definitely have the Stones. The list of Beatles records, related records that came out that year is pretty strong, but um, I don't really think if you add up those three, it's it, it, it touches uh, sticky fingers. So Stones wins this one by a long shot, in my opinion.
0: Something you said in your review, which, by the way, got a 10.0 on Pitchfork, which is a uh, that's rare territory, is that like, it's only two years between the two, between the two Rolling Stones albums, but that's an eternity at that time. And so like yeah. the idea of anticipation and delivering on that anticipation, I feel like you got at that pretty well in your review.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Plus I, I really think of this record as like, um, it's officially the start of 70 stones and a, a pretty interesting conversation that wouldn't be a bad idea for a podcast episode in itself is like 60 stones versus 70 stones. Cause um, you'll definitely hear people talk about which of those they prefer, and um, I guess you've already you've already covered the the, the earlier records, but '70s Stones is pretty special, and um, I'm actually a '70s Stones guy, uh, so this really kicks it off and kind of like frames the kind of stuff that they would be doing that decade in some ways the riffs are really amazing um but it has this like force to it um that wouldn't have made sense even like two or three years earlier so the nature of what people wanted from rock music had changed and it was pretty far from what the Beatles did at that point you know it would have been pretty interesting to see you know the direction they would have gone in but um but yeah I I think of like Especially this year, you basically have uh, you know, the Stones, the Who and Zeppelin. And those are like the three enormous, like, you know, world beating rock bands. But like the Stones were definitely heading in a territory that was like darker and meaner, but also also rootsier, you know, like um their obsession with American music really kicking into overdrive. And so
0: it's something we've talked often about and you wrote about as well, like his effortless ability to put on this like almost sometimes satirical draw this like mm-hmm. this, like country boy American in a way that's just like I mean he's it's it's pulled off in the most effortless and amazing way and he's really yeah. hard into that at this point
2: yeah and you know weirdly like no nobody else could really get away with it um because that that was the thing that was so interesting about Mick Jagger really like all the way through the Stones uh history is his his level of sincerity is not always always so easy to ascertain there's always like a little bit where you can't really tell if he's like is there an element where he's making fun of country music a little bit even though you know he loves it he's or is he making fun of the fact that he's like you know a guy from london who's singing country music or um and that extends in other genres a bit he's i think of him as someone who seems very aware that he's an interloper in some ways but his actual passion for the music you know genres in which he's working is so strong that that like carries through but that that gives him a different quality than um, you know even on the, even other british singers really like he's he's really like kind of a very unique in that way
0: there's no comparison here, but in the previous year, Ringo puts out two solo albums and one's like a big band Sinatra style one. And one's a country one. It's, it's like, I mean, you would never expect Ringo to do what Mick Jagger would, or or do something on the level of Mick Jagger in that way. But I mean, it's like, it's basically, it's like put a, a little kid putting on a cowboy costume.
2: Yeah. Whereas this is like, you know, one of the, if not the biggest bands in the world.
0: You, so I had this conversation last night with Ryan about, a lot of a big conversation about this album and the Beatles stuff and like found ourselves in the little tangled web of brown sugar, which you, you address oh. in it. Like this is this, it's incredible that a song is that big, but then you sit down and read the lyrics and it's like, I think you said it gets more pro- problematic upon inspection or maybe you didn't use that, that wording, but like, I found myself in this mode of like, I'm not here to defend brown sugar, but I'm here to try and explain brown sugar. But then as I do that, now I sound like I'm defending it. And yeah. I don't know how, uh, how do we talk about that song?
2: I know. Yeah. And it's, it's also interesting because like the context had emerged in early seventies. Um, of course, that was a very long time ago now. And, but it was even questionable at the time. And some people thought it was offensive at the time. Um, and now it's kind of so I mean, if, if you really look at it, it's so over the line offensive in 2021 that it's, it's it, it, would, it just wouldn't cut it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think it would be dismissed out of hand if it came out now, for sure. And you don't see a lot of people covering it or anything, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I've never, as much as I love the Stones, like, I don't really listen to them for lyrics as much as I might some other artists. So, um, You know i remember being pretty conscious of brown sugar for a while before really thinking about what it was about um or what the words were even though they're not not muffled or hidden in any way um so yeah it's weird i mean i if i if i play this album i can certainly there's things about brown sugar that i can enjoy but i probably wouldn't put it on around people i don't know and say like hey check this out isn't this great (laughs) you know what i mean it's like the time is long, long past for that. So, um, so it's, it's, you know, like, Mick Jagger didn't care then. And also, you know, he this he ran up against this in other ways, like, he'll come up against it when you talk about Exile Main Street. I mean, there's a couple of songs on there that are pretty questionable in terms of lyrics too, and then um, also some girls. And he just he just never really cared. You know, I mean, that was kind of like, his aloofness was part of what was so interesting about he just wasn't really cons- he was just kind of like considered himself above all of that um which you know is is problematic in its own way now <laughs> but he just was just didn't care about it he's like if, if if i mean it in the right way i don't really care how other people think yeah think about it you know and um that that definitely started with this with this song um and so yeah it, it, it's a tough one i mean it is one of the ones that got so overplayed on, on like rock radio that it's not, I don't know, it might be my ninth favorite song or something, you know? So it's like, I don't, I don't love it as, as much as some other stuff here anyway. But, um,
0: do you, do you have a favorite song on this one?
2: Um, I love, love Sway and I love Moonlight Mile. And I really love the groove of Can You Hear Me Knocking and, um, the extended jam and I mean, that that was a song where, you know, so like there were some big singles in this record. And so as a kid, I I heard the songs on the radio, but then when I finally got this album and heard a song like, can not you hear me knocking? Like the riff is so amazing. And I love how they stretch it out and um, it's pretty stacked. So there aren't, there aren't too many weak ones on here.
0: Is this like the band's peak? Or would you and also would you say it's your favorite of their albums or would or are there other rolling stones albums you'd give a 10.0 if you were reviewing them
2: yeah so i think you can make a very very good argument for this being their peak um the argument in favor of it is the diversity of it and the great songs that are on it the amazing production and it's also got some hit singles um which is kind of like some ways an important part of what the rolling stones were you know like um they were a band that was very much at the forefront of culture and you expected them to do well commercially to be on the radio etc um my personal favorite record is exile on main street and um that's even more diverse also has great songs it's really more for the mood and the sound of it but that that really didn't have any hit singles which you know it had a couple a couple of singles that did okay but um it didn't have the cultural force in its moment that this record did
0: do you you happen to know if that is like if they made that album and and that was fine with them or if they wanted those singles to do better or if part of its purpose was like we're making this thing it's gonna have a bunch of songs on it it's a mood and a vibe and here you go we're the rolling stones
2: yeah that's a good question i think like um I don't think they deliberately crafted it to be different or artier or anything. I think they kind of like found themselves in these situations with certain in certain times and places with certain kinds of gear in certain frames of mind, which with definitely a lot of drug use at that time. And I think that's kind of what happened. And in, you know, on a base level, it was like Jag and Richards writing songs, you know, trying to put things together. But then if they had something that was just a fragment or an experiment. They kind of left it in on that record because it was two two albums, and they could. Um, cool. Whereas a record like this, they you know they made it tight.
0: Awesome. Well, anything you feel like I had that you'd want to say before I let you go on this in relate in relation to Sticky Fingers, I appreciate you coming on.
2: Uh, you know, it's also got uh, one of the great covers in rock history. So um, I do have a copy with a zipper on it that tends to dent the record. That's you know to the right of it, but um, I never that's, thought that's, of that that's all. Yeah, it's, it's all part of the fun with this one, but yeah, it does does make a little indentation in the other record just because of the it sticks out. But um, yeah, g- great, great record and uh, very strong entry in, in your project, I think.
0: Very cool. Well, where can people find you and your writing and follow along?
2: So the best place is uh, my Twitter, which is at Mark Richardson, and I usually post uh, almost all about music, but I also post uh, links to my pieces and so on. So that's... That's the place to find me.
0: Excellent. Well, again,
2: thank you a ton, man. Yeah, thank you so much.
1: I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside. Oh,
2: yeah. What, what is your,
1: like prior to this podcast, what was your relationship with Ram?
0: So that's actually, I'm glad you asked that because my, my experience with Ram is that I probably spent a good chunk of my life having never even been aware of it, like probably up until like my maybe even my late 20s. And then I remember reading something talking about Paul McCartney's first album, the one we listened to last week, and Ram. And I saved them on Spotify. Like I very demonstrably like recognized the covers of them, had them in sort of like a rotation shuffle. And was like, oh, maybe I'll get into these. Like people are saying interesting, saying good things about these. And, and I, I never minded them, but I never fully attached to them. And so I I was, but, but I was aware enough to know that this was an album that was like, I think whatever source that was might've been like pitchfork or AV club or something like that. I was aware enough that it was like, this is a cool album now type thing. Mm -hmm. And now this week I've spent a lot of time getting fully into like how and why that is both in reading and listening, Mm -hmm. but it, my my experience was really, really connecting with the specific songs. I will say it was this week. But I have heard those songs and I have had that album saved before, but far, far, far from the way I've listened to like
1: the Beatles albums and Rolling Stones albums up to this point, you know mm-hmm. What about you? Um mine is a little bit more windy. I think I don't remember when I first heard this, but I think when I was in college and I went through my sort of initial deep dive phase into the Beatles and sort of going beyond the surface level of the the mega hits that everyone knows. And at that time I was definitely firmly in the Paul McCartney camp. And so I was sort of listening to all those records. And then I was like, somehow or another was like oh yeah well i'm gonna listen to some of paul mccartney's solo stuff and i just landed on ram i didn't really listen to a ton of the other wing stuff or even his first record and i just really liked it i just like yeah this is paul mccartney this is what paul mccartney sounds like it's you know it's a little bit slight but i didn't overthink it too much and i was just like i enjoy it i like it um and one of the things that's really funny about it to me i seem to be very much alone in my love and enjoyment of the song Uncle Albert to the point that uh, I want to give a shout out to my mom, who is a person who got me into a lot of this type of music. And um, as, as far as growing up, she, she was always kind of in this mode of a 70s singer songwriter stuff and, and probably more of a Paul McCartney type person. And I can definitely say about Ram that it was in my life enough that I had multiple conversations with my mom about how she hated Uncle Albert. And how she hated that song and could not stand it. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I could name any other song specifically that my mom hates. Uh, so shout out to my mom and her hatred of Uncle Albert. But I really enjoy that song. And then, you know, we talked on this podcast and on the after the Deluge podcast about the difficulty and sort of trying to get yourself in the mindset of the people that were there listening to it when it came out in 1971, they didn't know what was going to come after it. They, you know, had recently experienced what came before it. And this podcast has kind of been a great way to get in that mindset. Would you say? It does. Cause you're just in the album. You're,
0: you're just in the year you're in and like, I'll get to like, if you're like aggressively listening to like literally let it be and six or five or six solo Beatles albums and a Rolling Stones album in a given year, you're not looking ahead. You're in the year you're in, you'll get there when you get there. And that's what is happening when people are listening to music in real time.
1: So, yeah, I totally agree. So where I came out on this was I I started listening to it this week ex- being like, I, yeah, I used to listen to Ram all the time. I could probably sing you half the songs on there. I really like it. And then having just listened to let it be and and really enjoying some of the the solo stuff from from 1970 i was like "Ah." and then like reading some of the contemporary reviews of it and like robert kriskow and john landau are really hard on it like really negative and i was sort of like maybe this is maybe this isn't that good i'm kind of not enjoying it that much and then tonight like before the podcast i like threw it on one more time and i can't and i was like you know what fuck it i love ram like i don't give a shit what you say robert chris dow and you guys can complain and be saddle bastards all you want i kind of feel like a lot of those guys had it in for paul mccartney or were certainly like not trying to meet him where he was at and and i feel like some of those guys were not fair to to this era of paul mccartney
0: Damn, that is that is a winding road leading
1: all the way up to tonight. Yes, I I've, I've made my final. I who <laughs> knows it might change tomorrow. And I'm not saying that there's not things to complain about on here. It's definitely slight. It's definitely cutesy in the way that Paul McCartney does. But That's fuck fine. it, like this is. It seems like he's making the music he wants to make. Like who cares?
0: Yeah, the 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 John Landau pull quote is. Ram is the nadir in the decomposition of sixties rock thus far,
1: which is, I think the the Landau quote that I pulled was Ram is lacking in depth, purpose and conviction. I I don't know.
0: I don't know what was in Paul McCartney's head post Beatles or like, it's interesting how people respond to big things in their life. And to me, the idea that Paul McCartney responded by making that solo album album, in secret out in the country all by himself and then making this. It is so much more interesting than what, when a band dissolves and the lead singer makes a solo album now, or really for the last 30 years, or even then, you know, Yeah, like you're way better off to make a weird and divisive thing than like a extremely boring just like here, I just need to try and keep my career afloat thing. Like I love it. I, I, I like, I, I, well, I say, I love it. I love that he did it. Right. The idea that I love Ram. I, I can't say that my, where I land on Ram is that like, it strikes me as the kind of thing that was like poorly reviewed at the time and seemed weird. And then is, it's a very easy thing to look back on fondly now. Like it's good that it's interesting and different, but it's neither as bad as critics said at the time, nor as good as like the kind of cool people who are rehabilitating it now would like to say it is.
1: Yeah. I I think I totally agree with that. I kind of like want to go back to the place that I was in with it, which is like contextless. just like, this is a pretty good album. I like these songs. It's got a good feeling to it. I didn't, I was not listening to Ram in conversation with imagine and, i think that's part of the retrospective besides people just like cutting it a break is also like at the time i am sure there was this feeling of like well john lennon's over here and he's writing shit like imagine and he's writing power to the people and these are songs that are like really mean something and that are gonna like change the world and paul mccartney's over here talking about fucking uncle albert who the fuck is that
0: we're so sorry (laughs)
1: Um, and Monk Berry moon delight, you know, like you couldn't come, that's like soft serve ice cream. And I feel like with the benefit of hindsight, 50 years later, it's like, yeah, that John Lennon stuff amounted to nothing. It didn't, nothing changed. No great movement was born out of John Lennon's, this period of John Lennon's artistic imagination. And so, you know, maybe they thought like, well, this is the way is like to have a pop star who's, leading voice and change in the world and it's like actually uh nothing changed other than just like a bumper sticker slogan that's a perfect transition
0: to imagine um can we i i don't i listened to the wings album wildlife which is the other one this year i can talk about it but i think it's i think that like a wings conversation is better saved for the next year i have nothing to
1: say about it other than i hated it i hated everything about it (laughs) i really disliked it
0: to me to me i didn't i didn't have that level of active hatred i thought it was whatever it was fine it was that 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 was it like it 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 had like i liked the song love is strange had a nice little groove i liked but like really not much it kind of sounded to me like it kind of sounded to me like a shitty version of credence Or something in a lot of places Mm, i don't know either way let's let's save we'll save all right so wings put out wildlife this year we've talked about it and then we'll come back to you when they put out band on the
1: run i will just say is it felt like it felt like they were trying to annoy me like the the first couple (laughs) songs like feel like intentionally annoying yeah like if you say what you want about ram like if you you could just let it float away if you don't want it like yo you don't want this that's fine You can just put Ram on in the background and not hear it. Wildlife, I was like, ah, turn this shit off. I I think wildlife
0: is like a slapped together initial like forming of what wings would be. So we're not going to talk about wings today. We'll (laughs) talk about wings next week. Sure. When they, when they do the thing that matters more. (laughs) Um, But I, what you just said, like contrasting the sort of like, kind of like benign, a uh, playful family domestic fuck around album McCartney made against like this grand like assessment of the world that Lennon made at the time, as people perceived it. That that to me, I think a lot of this stuff that we're like assessing from our perspective as like millennials born in the early '80s, mid '80s, like. A lot of this stuff is not best treated in our hands, but fuck it. We're putting it in our hands anyways. Yeah. Who else think, is going to treat it? Exactly. But I think imagine is actually well treated in our hands. It's like, this is bullshit. This song this is, is
1: fucking ble- bullshit. The whole album is
2: bullshit.
0: I actually don't think the whole album is bullshit. I'm not. I'm You're right.
1: Not, I like Oyoko. Yoko.
0: I actually don't. <laughs> I, I I like more than that. I'm, pre- I'm prepared to defend a lot more than that. Actually, to me, but let's like let's spend some time on the song Imagine because like imagine I'm I'm a little bit more like mentally diseased and connected to the internet than you are. But I think you you read up and follow stuff. Six days into the coronavirus quarantine pandemic, we had a bunch of celebrities singing one line things going around in like a viral video by like Gal Gadot and like like uh, all these people singing Imagine. When Donald Trump was elected, we had Kate McKinnon dressed as Hillary Clinton the next day on Saturday Night Live or the first episode, sitting at a piano, singing Imagine. This stuff is fucking awful. (laughs) This is, it's the most non, as recently as the early 2000s, that song was being ranked as one of the best songs ever. I would venture to guess that as our generation and like, to be honest, like this is a little heavy handed and dramatic, but like maybe it's cuz we're a generation who ha- who's like defined by like 9/11 and a financial crisis that was like like enacted by people in power who are older than us and then basically like the response to the coronavirus you have all these things every you have like a tragedy every 10 years it's like
1: what am i just going to keep listening to fucking imagine like it doesn't. It's it means nothing. It has nothing. It really does seem totally meaningless. Like I know there's a word for something that means like a. It's like a blank slate that people. I mean, there's literal words in there, and it's literally saying you know, would the world be a better place if people got over their religious differences or their nationality differences or whatever? But it means nothing to me. It, it's like it, it's like the song
0: equivalent of like a cursive like like stained, like cedar board, like that you bought from Pier one imports that you put on your like dining room wall that says happiness.
1: Yes. It's also like, you know, imagining that scene that I said earlier for moonlight mile of like Mick and Keith on the back porch late at night, this, this song, my image in my head is John as some sort of um, like recluse in his mansion alone piano at like two in the morning just like pounding out that like key line like losing his mind
0: i i feel that and i but i think that what i want to say for john lennon's credit is that like john lennon wrote this song as another song like he sure like he says shit like this in a lot of songs. Yes. It's not on John Lennon that the world has taken this song and played it every single time something divides people for for decades since then. That's that's someone else's fault, you know. That's the culture's fault. You can't really help that. It doesn't, it doesn't change the way, like you should still assess the song as you assess the song, but it that's why it's awful. If it was just tucked into something else and you didn't really think about it, be like, Oh, that song was like, mm, it's uplifting,
1: but a little corny or something. You know, I, it sounds like honestly that you have a much more active beef with this song where like what you're just describing and sort of the fact that it's like been taken out, not out of context, but just taken out of proportion. Let's say, I I feel like that happens to like, I, I witness things like that six times a day in our wider culture. And so it just doesn't, it just washes right over me. Like I see some celebrities on the internet and they're singing Imagine. And I'm just like, next, like, I, I don't even have the energy. Cause if I, every time I saw something like that, I would probably like, I'd have a heart attack six months from now. Not saying that you're like wrong in, in your, I'm just saying like, I just can't even get up the energy to care about Imagine. Cause it's so just milk toast. It's the opiate of the masses. It's like, okay, well, just listen to Imagine and that'll fix all of our problems.
0: Yeah, I have a a high capacity for putting myself through that kind of shit. (laughs) But it weirdly does this thing where it's disingenuous and kind of like, it's very detached from the generation that produced it and like celebrated it. Like, like I, I, I am good with it. I'm good with being comforted by anything. It actually paints a picture of a, of a boring world devoid of anything. And so it's, it's just like in every single way, it's, it's a, it means nothing, which is probably why it's so easy to project it onto important situations all the time.
1: Yeah. And my wife and I, we talk all the time, maybe not all the time, but every once in a while you'll like see someone and they're carrying a book and you're like, oh, that's that's a book that people who don't like to read, read. You know what I mean? Like, you see that and you're like, you know, oh, that person doesn't actually like to read, but because they're reading that book. And that's kind of what this song is. This is like a song for people who don't like music or who aren't interested in music.
0: Yeah, there was there was a like Bill de Blasio had a thing like early in coronavirus, like, imagine all the people like he's like pointing to imagine as like the here's what we need to uplift us as we like enter into this tragedy it's like yeah you probably could give two shits about music and this is
1: this like of course you're the one pointing to this one of the tragedies to me of john lennon is that somehow his extremely complicated and complex character and persona has been managed to boil down be boiled down into this sort of general like peace, love, happiness thing that your your aunt puts on her wall in her kitchen. Lester Bangs wrote a short piece um, after John Lennon was killed about how, can you imagine John Lennon being more disgusted or irate at anything at the idea that he was murdered and then a group of people gathered around his apartment and saying, hey, Jude? Is there anything yeah. in the world that John Lennon would have hated more than that? This is somehow his lasting. And also, I also like that. You said, can you
0: imagine that?
1: Can you, <laughs> I, I mean, that should have been a line in the song.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's egregious on so many levels. Like he would have hated that. And also really. Hey Jude. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's because it's his kid, but like
1: we're talking about a song, kid
0: and we're talking to McCartney song. Like, yeah, that's,
1: yeah, I don't think he was a huge fan of Hey Jude. The point being is that somehow this song has become like a bludgeon, a cudgel to be like, this is what people think of when they think of John Lennon. It's like, he has a little bit of controversy in there. He says like, imagine no religion. What a controversial thought. Um, and it's it, his legacy is just so much more complicated. Yeah. I'm actually stunned that that crowd of people around
0: his apartment didn't sing Imagine.
1: I don't even want to talk about this song anymore. I like, I'm almost saddened that we've given it this much time because uh,
0: we, we had to, we we
1: did have to, it's, it's, I mean, it's easily one of the most famous songs of all time. Clearly it's considered John Lennon's like signature song. What's just like cuts me deep.
0: I, yeah. You know, like I, I actually really like we're having this conversation right now. I am so disoriented with this song, which, you know, like, I love a piano song and I know I'm talking more about it right now, but like I love a, a simple piano song with a nice melody and I love like a uplifting thing like contemplating a better world. Um, I have zero idea whether what 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 we're saying about imagine is the kind of thing that people would agree with or be like, how dare these people, these are the like shut the fuck up. I have no idea. I really have no idea. Like, I, because as recently as the early 2000s, this was like one of the top songs in the world. But I genuinely do think like we're at a place in the world over the last 20 years that this is, this is like people's sensors are up that, that read this as
1: nothing. I, I, I I wasn't, I really wasn't being flippant in that I think that people who care about music and people specifically who like the Beatles and care about the Beatles, I don't think that they are huge lovers of the song. I also just want to be clear that like, there are probably people listening to this podcast who really like that song. I respect your opinion. Um, That is like a totally valid opinion that I don't share. So I'm not going to try to go around and say like, nobody likes this song. No Beatles fans like this song, but in my imagination and conception of the world, the people who really, really like the song and it means something to them are probably not listening to music podcasts. Quite possible. I but I know. could be totally wrong. I honestly don't yeah, know. I,
0: I, I don't know either. Um, what I will say though, is that I brought that energy that I described of Imagine because I would tell you that 99.9% of people, 99.99999% of people who know the song Imagine have not listened to the album Imagine. That is those are two very disconnected things. Absolutely. You know? And we just spent all that time talking about that song. I don't think you need to talk too much about the the album, but I the album was I, I enjoyed the like the album is not that song, you know. I, I like actively think that like Gimme Some Truth is badass. Money. Give me some truth how do you sleep oh yoko crippled inside i loved those songs
1: man see i mean you heard me on last week's episode like put plastic ono band above all things must pass and like repping for that album and i really like that album i did not like this album (laughs) and quite a few of those songs uh, i just I found the whole thing to be kind of posturing. I found it to be boring. Um, Crippled Inside to me is like, was a Paul McCartney song that just had John Lennon lyrics. and And like, for me, Give Me Some Truth, it does have a little bit of bite to it. That's probably my favorite song on here besides Oh Yoko, which I just, I don't know why I really like. Oh, um, but Give Me Some Truth is like the kind of song that like the lyrics are like something a high schooler would write where it's just like, politicians bad, they lie to me, blam like, I'd say that's that's a
0: characteristic of this period of John Lennon. A drink, but and and you know what like what I said about like if Imagine was just a song tucked into an album that like you could discover if you got into John Lennon I might I might like find something in it if gimme some truth was thrust upon me every time like a fucking politician lied, I probably would hate it. I don't, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Like I, but I, but as a song just to discover on this album as you listen to it, I, I it's, yeah, I think it does got
1: some bite. I, I, like I think I have to give some credit to, to Robert Crisco in that I feel like he really made the strong point and some of the stuff that I was reading from him, that this is a year where it very becomes very clear that like, John and Paul needed each other like they've moved far enough away from each other now. And it's like all of the things that are bad about these two albums are things that could have been made better with the involvement of the other person.
0: I think that's true. I, I 100% agree with that.
1: And, and so John is so obsessed with the Beatles. Like he, he, he says like, oh, well, Paul McCartney, he said these nasty things about me on too many people and some of these songs on Ram. And if you read those lines, like they're pretty, they're not very edgy. They're not very vicious. And then to be like, okay, I'm going to write, how do you sleep? You know what? How do you sleep? Is it's the the musical equivalent of an ex girlfriend leaving you a a voicemail on your recording machine. (laughs) That is the tenor of that song. Like it's 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 someone flicking you with their finger and you punching them in the face.
0: But don't we want that kind of bluntness from John Lennon? Isn't that like who John Lennon is in the Beatles?
1: I guess so. I don't. I don't. To be honest, I don't know what I want from him. I wanted Plastic Ono Band, and I wanted that rawness. And it, I there's just something about this that the edge feels like it's taken off, or it feels like he's oh, it's
0: trying. off. It's, it's off. No, between those songs that I said I liked, there's a lot of boring, uh, big, giant, cliche, quote unquote, wall of sound songs um, from Phil Spector and John Lennon. Between them, that it's just, I, w- I will say like, I like Jealous Guy, but I really like it because I like love the Elliot Smith version of it, and so like that's that funny. that's a that's a rare situation where I love I I attached myself so much to this Elliot Smith song, and I I literally heard that before I heard the gentleman.
2: I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm sorry that. Made you cry. That is like
1: a song that has really lent itself to covers because I, I hate the John Lennon version, but I there's a uh, there's a guy his name is Donnie Hathaway that has a really good um it's kind of more of like a soul funky cover. I was
0: dreaming of a and my heart
1: was beating fast. I think, too, for this year, it, you, you hold these albums in conversation with the previous albums. And to me, like they're very like Imagine and Plastic Ono Band are very similar and Ram and McCarthy are very similar. And for me, Ram is the better version of that album. And like Plastic Ono Band is the better version of that album. My, my sensibilities attract me more to McCartney in
0: that version, but I definitely agree about Plastic Ono.
1: I did. I do want to say I really like George's slide guitar on "Give Me Some Truth." I feel like George brought something to this album. That was my some of my favorite stuff on this album is George's contribution. And something else I, I want to talk about, and um, it's probably time to wind this down. But this is something that we haven't talked about at all, and I feel like is an important point that has both of these albums in conversation. Is um, I really like Linda McCartney. I like her voice. I like her contributions on Ram. I think she's like, she's obviously not a a great singer or whatever, but she has something and she adds to those songs. And well, first of all, agree or disagree. Where are you at on Linda? I fully
0: agree. I either, I either don't notice her or find her to be like, uh, never a negative on anything. And I think usually, and and I those albums are those albums because they're
1: Paul and Linda McCartney making those albums. So this is exactly the point that I was going to get to, which is that throughout this whole period, John is bitching and moaning about how nobody accepted Yoko. No one respects her as an artist. They didn't allow her in. They didn't take her suggestions. And then he puts out two records that to my ear, where's the Yoko Ono on this? Where, you know, these are John Lennon records, this plastic Ono band. There's I don't he's not letting Yoko co-write these songs. He's not letting her come in and do her annoying screech thing. Like, yeah, they put out those experimental albums that he knew no one was gonna listen to and made no dent whatsoever. Like Paul McCartney is like, I want to be in a band with my wife, you know, peep people ripped on them like people ripped on Linda McCartney and made fun of her relentlessly and he's like yeah I want to make records with my wife I like singing with her
0: where's Yoko I, I actually don't have an answer to that question I assumed she was I assumed she was on these albums because they literally have her name in the title of the first one and the final track on the second one is called oh yoko and she was like in the mix with all those beatles ones i felt the same way about mccartney i mean i really like i can't overstate how much i like respect the first things paul mccartney does as a solo person outside of the beatles it's like hell yeah dude go do that thing with your people you love and people close to you go do a comfortable unique interesting thing without the pressures of like not only being in any band, but being in the Beatles, you know, like, and he wears it on, like on the spine of Ram, it says Paul and Linda McCartney. That's
1: rad. Yeah. So just for the record, Yoko Ono is credited as co-writing. Imagine in the song. Oh my love. That's it. Linda McCartney has seven song credits as co-writers on Ram. Amazing. And so I just I, I, I as I was listening to this record, it really occurred to me like the massive hypocrisy of just John being like, no one takes Yoko seriously. It's like, oh, why don't you put her on your records? You're the one of the most powerful musicians in the world. Why don't you feature her and her musical stylings? Oh, no, that that would cramp your style or be bad for business. Huh? Maybe that's why the Beatles didn't want her involved in your records. Whatever, you know, people want to say about Paul, and I'm sure he's got plenty of Beatles blood on his hands, like to probably to his like musical post Beatles career detriment. He was not shy about being like, I want to do this stuff with my wife. And he got he got nailed for it. Ringo
0: says, I feel sad about Paul's albums. I don't think there's one good tune on that last one. He seems to be going strange jesus christ
1: Ringo. yeah dude i i honestly until this week i did not realize that ram was so poorly received people really didn't like ram
0: yeah it's cool it's it's cool that you got to live in that vacuum i mean i was a kind of oblivious to it but
1: people just it seemed like people were just like taking their turns dunking on paul mccartney like oh yes this person is vulnerable now we can all get our shots in Paul
0: McCartney takes his licks like now, like he's getting nailed like none of this stuff is responded to well in the moment that he does after the Beatles and then we're going to go all the way through 72 with nothing and then in 73 he's going to do Band on the Run and then it's like mm-hmm. McCart- McCartney's good from there, so
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was super fun, this is like a weird year of mismatch of albums, I think we can clearly put Sticky fingers in the winner's camp. Although people who haven't should give another listen to Ram. I do think there's a lot to be discovered and enjoyed there, especially no one has done more than me on this podcast to dump on the like cutesy artsy Paul McCartney stuff. (music) Does get tiresome at time, but if you can put yourself in the right frame of mind, it's quite enjoyable.
0: All right, Ryan, that was fun. I'll see you in uh, 1970. What year are we in? 1972?
1: 1972.
0: Next year, next year 1972, I'm representing a classic John Lennon <laughs> Yoko Ono album called Sometime in New York. I know you've all heard it. Uh, and Ryan's going to uh. represent a little-known album called Exile on Main Street. Thanks to Pantheon for uh, creating a space for us, and thanks to AKG for
1: giving me a microphone. Your microphone sounds so good on this podcast right now. Oh,